You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned into our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify our work and the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council, and you may also know me as the Council's voice on social media. Uh, and I am here today with uh, our most frequent guest, uh, Ward 1's Brienne Nadeau. Thanks for being with us, Council Member. Glad to be here. Um, well, you've had quite a week on social media. Um, despite uh, Queen Elizabeth passing, despite all the excitement at the U.S. Open with Serena Williams and um, Francis Tiafo, uh, despite the whole Harry Styles, Chris Pine spitting thing. That was a big thing. You managed to break through on social media and you managed to take a pretty wide uh, um, swath of social media with you. Um, and, and you also managed to unify the right and the left in America because both were pretty frustrated at the tone of the conversation that occurred last week. Um, so why don't we start off by uh, having you uh, put in your terms what triggered this social media attention, I think you know what I mean, and uh, where it went wrong and how we can kind of bring it back on, on the tracks. So in April, <clears throat> Governor Abbott of Texas decided um, that he was going to start sending um, asylum seekers who have arrived here in the United States to the District of Columbia on buses, basically just to get them out of Texas, um, which is not the procedure that one typically follows. Um, if you're an asylum seeker, you've been granted legal status here in our country. Um, you have a sponsor. You have someone um, that you can go live with. Um, and for Texas and, and later Arizona, there are centers that greet immigrants that help them get where they're going. There's nonprofits that do that work um, in those border cities. Um, and there's a process there. So Texas and then later Arizona decided instead they were just going to start sending the, um, the asylum seekers to the district um, and now also New York. And they've started Chicago. And the majority of these folks were excited to get bus tickets to the East Coast because it gets them a little closer to where they want to ultimately go. And most of them don't stay. Um, although we did hear recently someone showed up who was just trying to get to another part of Texas. So obviously they're not being given great information when they're getting on these buses. So since April, we've received thousands of people, about 85, maybe 90% of them have moved on. Um, but more and more are staying here in the district. And so the initial response was um, DC's mutual aid network. It was Catholic Charities. It was um, Caresen, which is another local nonprofit that serves immigrants. Um, and then um, there was a FEMA grantee, SAMU first response, that stepped in and is greeting now about half the buses, the capacity that they have. And at this stage, we've heard from FEMA that um, 
they're not going to be supplying us any boots on the ground or other assistance um, besides the reimbursements. Um, we've heard that they don't have any space to lend us. We've heard um, from the federal government that we're not going to be able to activate our National Guard or use the armory. Um, so, um, and also that it seems that Texas and Arizona have moved on from this being sort of a political stunt to sort of, you know, make a point to President Biden. And instead, this seems as though they've figured out it actually kind of works for them. So they're going to keep doing it indefinitely. So last week, Mayor Bowser announced um, a state of emergency, which gives her the power to set up an office of migrant services, which at this stage we definitely need, um, which will allow us to ensure that every bus that arrives at Union Station is greeted and that folks are given direction and services as needed when they get here, which is, you know, something that it's time to do. Um, and it's also really important to stand this office up because um, it's a new situation for the district. We've welcomed immigrants in all forms since our existence. And now we're having to adapt to receiving them in a different way, um, in a way that the federal system doesn't really account for. Um, so we're setting up our own operation. Um, it'll be through grant making. So you know there'll be a solicitation so that nonprofits or others can step in and um, do the work. But the idea is, um, they'd be greeting every bus and triaging folks and getting them the services they need um, to go where they want to go. So I think maybe part of the question is that there are a lot of parts to this. There is the fact that there are so many asylum seekers uh, in uh, the United States. There's the fact that they are not where they normally are right across the border, they're in DC. Is that in and of itself a problem? Is it the fact that they were bused here that was the problem or was it strictly the people who bust them here? Who it, well, Are there multiple problems and is there just one part that we're particularly peeved about or, um, where do you see, it's easy, I think, to uh, to criticize, obviously, the governors for this literal moving a problem out of their jurisdiction. Um, but are there bigger problems that are here and that we should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it goes without saying that there are big problems with our immigration system. And I think that was the point that those governors were making. My issue is that they're using asylum seekers kind of as pawns in their political game, right? We're happy to welcome people who intend to settle here, but the majority of the people don't. So they're just hopping on a bus, hoping for the best, not knowing what will greet them, being told one thing. I mean, we're hearing they're being told, you know, this is, you go here and every you'll get all your needs met. Um, which if there was a, a welcome center the feds had set up, that would make perfect sense, but that's not the situation here. So people were just being sent here. And if our mutual aid and our nonprofits hadn't stepped in, they'd just be dropped at Union Station with nothing, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, it's not how the system is set up. When you enter our country seeking asylum and you're granted legal status, um, there is a process to help you settle. 
and it's a long one. So people do get stuck sometimes at the border for a while. Um, so this is, I guess, Texas and Arizona's way to sort of um, reduce that impact in their communities. Um, it's just not very humane, right? So the system should be sending people individually to the places that they're wanting to go, right? Like here's the bus ticket to your aunt Millie in Colorado, or here's the bus ticket to your aunt Susie in New York, rather than, all right, everybody get on a bus to Washington. And the only reason they're coming here is it's because, you know, we're our nation, it's our nation's capital. Um, and that's where our president lives. So that was the point. Um, now as a, as a sanctuary city, um, which I think we've declared multiple times by uh, in legislation, is there was there an error in declaring that we're a place of sanctuary, but not having resources in place if too many people took us up on the offer? And I realize they're not taking us up on the offer; they're being literally shipped here and thrown off a bus, but. Is there some element of we, we needed to think through what happened if we had a, a glut of people uh, wanting sanctuary? I mean, I think that's what the Republicans want you to think. I mean, that's what the narrative is on, uh, you know, Republican Twitter right now. But that's not it's a misunderstanding of what we're talking about here. So a sanctuary city is a place that does not persecute undocumented residents within its boundaries. Right. As a sanctuary city, we don't cooperate with ICE. <clears throat> Our agencies are prohibited from turning over information about residents. It's meant to allow them to come out of the shadows and pursue work, um, to have legal driver's licenses through our, our program, to allow them to access our healthcare program, the Alliance for Undocumented Residents. It's a really special thing about the District of Columbia. Um, <clears throat> these residents who are arriving are not undocumented and they're eligible for a certain number of services based on their status. It's kind of a different animal. Um, it's not about who comes and stays and goes. Um, it's about your rights when you're here. So a sanctuary city that is. So that's, uh, I don't know. I think um, <laughs> people I, like I, Tucker Carlson are leaning in on sound bites that don't really make a ton of sense. Right. And, and realize that there's a bit of a, uh, I'm doing a bit of a devil's advocate here because I don't just want to give you a kind of platform to say what a lot of us might feel about the concept of taking human beings in need. And yeah, that's fine, but I don't I, think that's where I'm going from. So I'm just, you can play I, devil's I, advocate, I, but this isn't a both sides thing either. So let's not both sides it. It, it absolutely is not. Yeah. But I think having a chance to respond to these, you can't respond to them on Twitter because the second you engage on Twitter, the whole thing would just go go nuclear. Well, this will be on uh, Twitter, so <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll see. Yes. <laughs> um, and is the number of asylum seekers, and you might not know the answer, I don't, different, significantly different. I know the number of people crossing the border is higher. Is the number of asylum seekers higher uh, in this administration versus in the previous administration? I don't know, but you know, the way that asylum goes is it really depends on what's going on in the world, right? So Afghanistan, Ukraine, Venezuela, you know, that's how we see the waves. Um, and whereas, for example, we have a significant Afghan population in the region, we don't necessarily have a significant Venezuelan 
population of the region, which is one of the waves we're seeing right now. So it's not highly logical that a lot of folks coming from Venezuela would want to settle in the in the Washington region because they don't have the same support system that they might have in other parts of the country. Um, and that's one of the things that's really important when someone's coming to this country is ensuring they have the right supports. So we always do what we can here in the district to support those who settle here 100%. Um, but, you know, to the, the, to the extent that there's sort of an artificial um, path here um, with these buses, it, it may not ultimately be the best thing for the people who are coming. So for those of us who care deeply about ensuring we're welcoming immigrants and we're supporting them, we also want to make sure they're getting to go the place that's going to be the best for them long-term. Right. And as you pointed out, there is a network of asylum uh, services across the border. So in reality, they're in most cases being bussed away from the services that would have helped them to a place where we'll do absolutely the best we can from a social service standpoint, but we're not necessarily as well equipped to deal with asylum seekers here as they might be at the border. Right. Um, so to close out this section, so you do not think this is Joe Biden's fault as opposed to the governor's, and you do not think you are being a NIMBY, uh, because all of a sudden these folks have shown up in your neighborhood, literally, potentially, and now you've noticed that it's an actual problem. Oh, I mean, I, I think the president is certainly culpable here too. I mean, there's a lot that the federal government could be doing. Um, to address our immigration issues. And, you know, I, I mean, he's the president. So it's the buck stops with him. Absolutely. Um, and it would be great um, if he and his colleagues would step in too and, and do something to assist um, so that this doesn't continue. But um, right now, all we have are FEMA reimbursements. Right. One of the rare, uh, I thought, vaguely productive social media comments from, it was from someone on the right um, that said, uh, all of America is now a border town. We should all share in the complexities of immigration policies that have been put on the shoulders of only a few states. We've pointed fingers at each other long enough. Now seems like a good time for us to work as a nation to figure it out. Yeah, sure. I mean, rare. I mean, I know that the left has been pushing for kind of comprehensive immigration reform for a long time. It hasn't been able to get through Congress. Uh, but I think that is the issue that if you keep just sort of pinholing these individual elements or symptoms, you're never going to get to the broader issue and come up with a nationwide solution. Yeah. I mean, look, Democrats have been wanting to reform the immigration system for many, many years now. And so if there are partners on the other side of the aisle who want to get on board, that would be great. I mean, my family is sponsoring an Afghan family right now that uh, the patriarch served with my husband in Afghanistan during the war there, and they are stranded and have been abandoned by our government, and they're awaiting humanitarian parole, and they've been in exile uh, out of their own country for more than a year now, um, and they cannot go back because they are being targeted by the Taliban because they helped the United States. So, you know, there are a lot of people impacted by the broken immigration policy in the United States. Here in the district, though, I am very excited that Mayor Bowser has taken the steps to establish the Office of Migrant Services. Um, we will be taking up legislation next week on an emergency basis to assist with the establishment of that and clarifying what services are available and um, 
then my committee, the Committee on Human Services will consider the permanent legislation to establish that office. Um, and we'll have a discussion as a community about what that means to have this office exist, to delineate what services are available and the cost of it, um, which will be significant. And for uh, the outset, we'll be using contingency funds and we'll be requesting reimbursement from FEMA for those expenditures, um, but we will most likely not be made whole. Um, and so we will have to grapple with that as a city about what that means and where the resources will come from as we do with every budget. Um, but it's, uh, it's definitely um, the challenge that's before us now and we're up to it. And I know that all of our networks are going to continue working together um, to support this effort so we can welcome people safely and, and get them where they want to go. And if that's here, welcome them to our community. And then what would you say uh, on a final question on this, the folks on the left that have been critical of the debate over this topic in D.C. are saying uh, that this is shining a spotlight on an issue and uh, that this could hurt the left in the election, that, that you're giving grist to the political mill. Um, any thought on that? I mean, I realize there's real people at play here and we can't concentrate on the politics, but what, what would your response be to that? I, I guess my response is that, you know, I, I gave a um, some lengthy remarks in a press conference last week. And as often happens, some pundits cherry picked a few things that I said. And, you know, I don't know how to make that stop. Um, I have been saying the same thing for about four months now. And I guess they just noticed. Um, but this is the reality. Um, is and we do need to condemn the actions of those who put others at risk. We can't just ignore them. Um, we have to call people out for their bad behavior. And um, from the emails and phone calls and tweets that have been directed towards me, I can say, um, I don't think the people I'm hearing from are particularly persuadable. That's, uh, that's probably true. Um, okay, so the, the main topic of the entire show is to look at uh, sanctuary for asylum seekers, sanctuary uh, for uh, abortion access in light of the overturning of uh, Roe v. Wade and broader implications in the fight for statehood. So why don't we pivot from, I wanted to start with the migrant piece because it's newsy and is getting attention, but let's uh, pivot to the abortion access uh, piece or nationally the lack of abortion access piece um, and hear about what is uh, what efforts are underway in the council to protect abortion access in the district to be a point of sanctuary for those services and your thoughts on how statehood comes into all of this. Right. Um, so there is a news hook for you on this, Josh, because we have a markup on Friday. Um, yeah, so that's exciting. Nothing works on Twitter like a markup. Exactly. So um, we are working through my bill and Councilmember Henderson's bill. Hers is the Enhancing Reproductive Health Protections Amendment Act. And that is um, protecting those who support and assist individuals self-managing an abortion and to shield those who provide, dispense, or transfer any product used for self-managed abortions. And then mine is the abortion sanctuary bill, but it actually goes a little further than that. Um, it does a few things. One, it, it creates sanctuary here in the district 
So if you come and have an abortion here, um, we cannot cooperate with an authority or someone seeking information about your health procedure. Um, it also contemplates some things that were hinted at in some of the recent Supreme Court um, opinions. Um, it would create sanctuary also for those like same-sex marriage or gender-affirming care um, that might not be able to be uh, sought in other states or that might be um, repealed in other states or by the feds. So the bills were, I think, both unanimously introduced. No, mine was. Um, we had hearings on them. We got lots of great feedback, minimal criticism. Um, there was you know, some criticism in from people who just don't support access to abortion. Um, and then there were some tweaks, I think, from some of our legal partners. The, um, this bill was referred to the Committee on Government Operations, which is chaired by Robert White. Um, and his team has taken all of that information that came from the hearing and bundled it together and the committee will vote on it Friday at two. So it's very exciting. Oh, my bill also creates a private right of action. Excuse me. Um, so if someone comes after you for having an abortion, like a bounty hunter type from, again, we're talking about Texas, um, then you can go after them to recoup damages. So that is... Um, Another thing there. We modeled our bill initially after the Connecticut legislation that passed earlier this year. So um, it's very exciting that it's moving forward. Um, so then let's kind of step over to the statehood piece and why, um, why how that is relevant to both the migrant conversation and the uh, abortion conversation. Yeah, so... Okay, for the abortion bill, we know every piece of legislation that passes through the council goes under a congressional review period. That's a condition of home rule. And usually that doesn't matter. Um, but there have been times over the years where Congress does want to intervene slash interfere in the work of the 13 duly elected officials and the mayor um, who are moving that legislation. So when that happens, you know, they can take it up in committee, they can overrule it, they can rescind it, um, and then our law is, is repealed. Um, and it's easier for them to do this with a bill that is in progress with the congressional review period than it is with established law. Um, I think maybe it's more palatable that way, I don't know. But um, so that's a risk. It's one of the reasons that we've done everything we can to move this bill forward this year. Um, in case we lose control of the House and the Senate, um, that we don't have issues. Um, so it'll be a squeaker um, with the markup this week. Um, it, it'll get through first and second reading. Um, I think this month, I think both this month, if not early October, um, and then that congressional review period will kick in after the mayor signs the bill and transmits it. So it'll be tight, um, but we are just trying to keep it moving. Um, with um, the response to migrants coming from Texas and Arizona, I mean, one example of 
where statehood came into play was every other governor is allowed to deploy their um, National Guard how they wish. And so we, um, you know, we're handicapped in that way. We have to ask permission to use our National Guard. And in this case, the mayor asked a couple different ways and was repeatedly denied, asked if we could use the armory space for processing, was denied. Um, you know, the responses varied. I think underlying is they don't feel they have the capacity to do this and whatever else they're called upon to do, you know. So maybe that's something that we need to look deeper at, but again, not something we control. And so um, these are two very clear instances that are happening now that relate to statehood. And, and if we had a statehood, we would have more control over these situations. And so I think it's a good reminder, it all comes back to our autonomy. Right, and, and you, you uh, didn't mention the nightmare scenario, which would be uh, if uh, Congress were to change hands and the presidency were to change hands, that by a simple act of Congress, home rule could be eliminated. Um, so that, you know, and then it would not even be, there wouldn't even be efforts by the council being overturned by the Congress. There wouldn't be a council potentially, and there could be a presidentially run, you know, back like it was for a hundred years. There could be commissioners appointed by the president who write every single law and regulation for the city. So. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess I, my read on that is that it's that the Republican leadership is not particularly enamored with that idea, which is good for us. I also think a bit about the logistics of it. I mean, before home rule, we didn't have, you know, as many government agencies as we did, as many departments, as many committees, as many councils. I mean, an appointed commission running this city would be a logistical nightmare for the commissioners and the Congress, and it would make them all look <clears throat> pretty ridiculous. So, um, you know, it's worth that, contemplating that. Right. And where the, the flip side of that is uh, the current consensus in the district is by a simple act of Congress with the signature of the president, we could have statehood. Um, but due to the um, way the Senate votes or doesn't vote the filibuster, uh, that doesn't seem to be uh, as uh, likely of an option as we might have hoped and thought. Yeah. And I think that's been a very, it's been a priority at varying levels, you know, even when we've had the majority. And I think that's something we need to keep pressing on within the Democratic Party, even when right. we have... Democratic leaders who pledge their support to statehood, it doesn't always advance the bill. Now we have gotten further than ever thus far in the past couple of years. Um, and thanks to so many advocates for statehood who've been doing this for decades, but you know, it's still a long way to go because we need that other vote. Absolutely. Um... I guess the question to go back to to the, the migrant and abortion issue is what are your this is a bit sort of philosophical slash moody, but what are your thoughts on where the country is going? I mean, we're at this point where a state thinks it's OK to ship its problems to another state. And, uh, you know, and a state is sending out bounty hunters to get people to break the law in their state. And it, it's 
you know, I, I don't buy into the, the civil war argument, but what, how do we get out of this? I mean, having been recently the victim of uh, the, the rage on one side of the spectrum and not a principled rage and not, well, we disagree with you on principle uh, or on policy, but just a real vicious, ugly, personal attacks on you. Um, how do we get out of this as a country? <sighs> Gotta go through it, right? The only way out is through. You know, I think um, engaging younger people helps, right? I think younger people who are newer and have more optimism, <clears throat> getting them involved in politics helps break the cycle. Um, and perhaps that's always been the case, right? In the district, we had a proposal a couple of years ago to lower the voting age to 16. Um, and some wonderful youth who were leading that charge, who very much made their case um, by being who they were, that young people have the ability and, and smarts to make informed decisions in our electorate. And I think, you know, we need to be thinking more about that, engaging people young, getting them involved. Um, encouraging longtime leaders to pass the torch and pass the baton. And also, you know, people at the top um, expressing more civility. You know, I'm, I'm certainly working as I, you know, we're, we're all human beings, right? That's the, that's the, um, that's the thing that always gets you, right? Um, government is made up of human beings, which is why it's not perfect. And political parties are made up of human beings, which is why they're not perfect. Um, but the more that we can each look inward and think about, um, you know, how it feels to be the target or how it feels to um, lose something very valuable and important to you, whether that's, you know, your family's health or, you know, your family's rights or, you know, your community's safety. I mean, people have to have to look inward. I mean, the... Two years of COVID have made people very stressed out um, and they are angry. Um, and I feel that as a leader, right? My thing now is let's get together in person. Let's just start connecting as humans again. You know, if you're gonna email me for several weeks about a particular issue, let's just sit down and talk about it. Sit face to face, eye to eye. <clears throat> so you can understand I'm a human being trying to help you and I can see your humanity as well. So, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what a good leader tries to do. I'm certainly not perfect. And I'm always working on myself and my leadership, but that's what I think is the path through. Yes. And uh, my last interview uh, a few days ago was with Robert White and we went sort of deep on mental health. And I think mental health care is uh, a big part of this. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of folks that should open up to mental health care and uh, that might take the edge off of some of this. Yeah, I agree. So, maybe maybe um, like the full therapy for pundits act. Yeah. Well, it's not the pundits that worry me. It's it's the day-to-day, the -day, every individual person who thinks that they- <laughs> Oh, I know. I was just, I was just getting the, the vitriol, the vitriol yeah. part. It's true. We all- we all could use some help, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately we are out of time on this sort of deep and meandering uh, 
discussion we have had. <laughs> uh, but uh, thank you once again, council member, for joining us. Uh, listeners, remember to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search under here in council. Uh, thanks again for joining us, listeners. Uh, tune in next time. We are on DC Radio at 96.3 on your FM HD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is hearing the council. Thank you. Thanks, Thank council. You. Take care. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye.